This is Stephen Armstrong, pastor of Living Word Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. I want to thank you for taking time to download and listen to our verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Our ministry has a single focus. We believe strongly that the church today is in dire need of strong, biblically-based teaching, and we hope you agree. As you listen to the teaching, I'd like you to consider an invitation. We're looking for partners in cities across the United States to help us place this kind of good, sound, biblical teaching on the air, on radio stations, in local markets. Currently, our teaching is already playing on an AM station in the San Antonio area, and I'm hoping that you might be willing to consider either sponsoring or helping to coordinate the sponsorship of a radio program in your hometown. The Bible teaches us that God's Word will not go out and return void. So would you please consider working with us to get God's Word out to those who need it the most? If you're interested, I invite you to contact us and we can give you more information about how you can help us in this endeavor. The easiest way to reach us is by email. The email address is simply steve at stephenarmstrong.com. That's Stephen Armstrong spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N-A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G dot com. If you'll email me there, I'll respond to you quickly, and I can tell you more about this program. The second way to reach us is by phone. You can call us at area code 210-241-1724. I look forward to hearing from you. Meanwhile, We cherish your prayers and support for this ministry. Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Armstrong. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke 9. I think we left off at about verse 12, which is where we'll pick up again today. As we ended last week, you may remember Jesus had assembled his apostles after having sent them out to perform miracles. That was at the first part of chapter 9. We saw the... Amazing things the apostles were able to do because of what God gave them in terms of power and authority. As we studied the disciples, they've been somewhat successful, certainly. They must have had some trials along the way, but they came back excited to tell their story. And as they came back, they brought crowds. You remember last week we said that they evidently had had enough success that in each case, these 12 men had brought back some number of followers. And, you know, that makes some sense. If you go out and you heal somebody of a disease or if you cast a demon out, well, certainly that's going to catch someone's attention and people who are seeking after the same thing are going to follow. And so here's this huge crowd beginning to gather around the disciples and Jesus. And Jesus tries to retreat. We heard last week that he moved himself and his disciples small distance away to a town called Bethesda. We have Bethesda, Maryland today, but... I doubt many people who live in that town realize that Bethesda means city of fish. And that's where this crowd has gone now to follow Jesus. As they tried to retreat, the crowd nevertheless pursues. And we heard that Jesus compassionately turned and taught them and even began to heal them as well. And now you have to imagine in your mind this huge, huge crowd. Now Jesus has had crowds for quite some time, but now the crowd is really much bigger than something we've seen before, something that's really approaching an unmanageable size. And the disciples had to be getting a little nervous. There's a growing sense of, I would imagine, helplessness of, of, you know, what do we do with all these people? 
How are we going to accommodate their needs? And, you know, we understand the disciples may have even tried to send some of them away, encourage them to leave, but it's obvious they're not going to leave. They've come for what Jesus can do for them. They're not going to be easily dissuaded from being there. So the disciples in verse 12 of chapter 9 are going to turn to Jesus now for the help that they think they need. Now look what happens in verse 12 and onward. Now the day was ending and the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. But there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces, which they had left over, were picked up 12 baskets full. Well, without saying it, it's obvious this is probably the most famous of all the miracles Jesus has performed. I I venture if you ask someone to name one of Jesus' miracles, nine times out of ten, this would be the first one that gets mentioned. It's also the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels. The only one that gets covered by all four writers. And because of that, we can gain some wonderful insight into the events of this story, because each one captures the event just a little differently, and in that difference, we learn a few things. Let's start with some simple observation of what we've already read. The text tells us 5,000 men were gathered in this crowd. The other Gospels, though, add the detail that there were women and children as well, and that's not unusual. You probably have heard this before, but in that day, counting crowds, counting men, counting families, largely centered on counting the men only. And uh, the presumption was we could guess how many women and children were there. And really, we didn't care how many in that culture. We cared only about how many men and so on. And so when you look at a number like 5,000, you really have to extrapolate a little bit. We're looking at a crowd here of likely 10,000 or more. And so maybe some have counted as high as 20,000, depending on how many children were there. Now, if I want you to imagine a basketball arena. I want you to imagine a hockey arena. I want you to imagine a a college football game or even a high school football game in Texas. And imagine 20,000 people. You know, that's a huge crowd. Where do they sleep? Where do they eat, obviously? I mean, just bathroom facilities. And that day it would have been very rudimentary, of course. But still, that's a lot of people and a lot of need that comes with it. This is a huge, huge crowd. There's no way they could all hear Jesus, much less get close to him. And now you have to recognize how much interest and attention Jesus' ministry is beginning to gather. I mean, imagine if you're the authorities in this day. Imagine you're a Roman authority in that day or one of the Jewish leaders in that day. And you see this kind of a crowd gathered around Jesus. You know, armies have been made up of less people than this. This is a significant threat if you are in authority in that day. A man who can command 10,000 people to follow him is a man who can do almost anything. If you had enough followers, if you get a crowd big enough, you can overthrow a government. So when we hear about Jesus being a threat, I think sometimes as we read into the gospel, we think of that only in terms of what he was saying. And if you're like me, you sometimes wonder, why did they make such a big deal out of Jesus? Why in, in that day, why did the authorities worry so much about him? Some of that is God's plan. Some of that is demonic. But some of it is just plain practical. Anyone who could command that kind of attention was a threat. 
Now, the second thing we know from the text is we know it's getting late in this day. As the crowd has come back with the apostles, the day's ending, and now we're reaching the point where we need to do something with all these people. There's no food for them and there's no shelter. And this is a concern for at least two reasons. First, and probably obvious, travel at night was dangerous. If these folks were going to have somewhere to stay and something to eat by the end of the day, they needed to get moving. Because it wasn't happening there, as far as the apostles could tell. And you don't travel at night in that culture. I saw this back in Kenya. When I was in Kenya last year or two years ago, now a year and a half ago, the culture there was such that a place that's perfectly safe in the daytime would be very dangerous at night. And, and I think this is more than just a rural experience in that country, and I bet it's the same in a lot of countries in the third world, that you don't want to be out after night. There's not a lot of protection in that setting. And the same was true in their day. Men women did not travel at night if they could avoid it. So there's just a simple concern for their well-being here. The apostles don't think they're going to be able to accommodate them. They want to help them by getting them on the road before it gets dark. But secondly, this crowd, because of its size and because of the time of year, which we'll talk about here in a moment, is getting restless and it's getting nationalistic. You know what nationalism is? That's a sense that a group of people can come to that says, we're more than just a group. We are an entity of our own. We are a nation. We are a state. We have some standing as an entity. And nationalistic fervor drives crowds to do very dramatic things. The best example in our recent memory, of course, was Nazi Germany. A nationalistic sense in that country drove them to follow a a madman and start World War II. Why was this crowd nationalistic? Why am I saying that? Well, in the account that John gives of this same event, as Jesus feeds the crowd, John tells us this in John 6.15. Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. That's how John ends his description of the same account. John also tells us at an earlier point in this same account, in John 6.4, he says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So this event is happening very early, or, or in the earlier part of a calendar year, right before the time of Passover. Now why is that significant? Well, put together the size of the crowd, their enthusiasm over Jesus, and now centered in a Passover theme, in a Passover moment not on the Passover, but it's close. The time of the Passover was an extremely nationalistic time of year for the Jews. Every time it came around, if you know anything about the history of the Jewish nation in the time of the Roman occupation, what time of year did the Roman authorities get the most nervous about every year in Judea? It was Passover. And you only have to know a little bit about the Passover to understand why the Jews got so nationalistic during that time and why the Romans got so nervous about it. All the years that the Romans had rule over Judea, They would actually bring additional forces into Judea and additional emphasis on security to clamp down on what they anticipated would be riots or insurrection on the part of the Jewish nation. Because to a Jew, Passover was the memory of how they once before came out from under the bondage of an oppressor and became a nation of their own. And it would be just like if in this country we had been taken over, let's say, by the Russians back in the Cold War days. And we were no longer our own country. We were under the oppressed control of the Russians. What would happen, do you think, every year around July 4th? Every year around July 4th, we would have this secret desire to see somebody rise up and crush the enemy once and for all. It would reignite a sense of nationalism in our own people. And it's the same thing that happened every year around Passover for as long as the Romans were there. In fact, it was during the Passover that one of the most famous insurrections, uh, the time of the Maccabees, 
happened in conjunction with a Passover time of year. So here's Jesus, a man who seems to be the one God has promised to deliver his people from bondage. And he seems to have the power to do almost anything. And now he has a crowd of followers, and they're this far, John tells us, from rioting into Jerusalem and trying to place Jesus on the seat of David. But Jesus says it's not the time for that. He's not going to allow that. So the concern I would imagine the disciples have in the moment is they're sensing this uneasiness, this you know, teetering of the crowd between calm and orderly behavior and rioting behavior. And they're not really interested in seeing a, a riot of 10,000 people. They're not necessarily sure of what they would even do about it, right? Now, at this point, the disciples don't have any clue about Christ's larger plan, about his plan to eventually die on the cross, etc. And they're getting nervous, as I said, about this crowd. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing worse than a large nationalistic crowd of Jews, it's a large nationalistic crowd of hungry Jews. And at this point... They're thinking the best thing that we can do for these people is to feed them and let, or let them go so they can get fed and get bedded. And hopefully it all just kind of calms down. So they ask Jesus, send them away, please. Can you make them leave? And Jesus replied to them, very interesting reply. He says to them, you feed them. You feed them. Now, before we try to understand what Jesus was actually expecting the disciples to do, we need to go to John one more time for another piece of detail. In John 6, 5, he says this. Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy food so that these may eat? And the reply, or the next verse in John is this. This Jesus was saying to test them, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And what we gain out of what John noted is that Christ didn't ask this question assuming that the disciples could actually go out and feed 10,000 people. He, he understood that wasn't going to happen, not from the disciples anyway. But he asked the question without really letting on that he had that impression. You notice that? The question in John was, where are we going to buy food to feed all these people? How are we going to take care of all these people? In the way Luke records it, of course, Jesus simply told them, you feed them, which is really a summary, I guess, if you will, of what John has recorded. So John tells this that Jesus who was already preparing to feed these people himself, but he knew that he was going to have to do it through a miracle. But he doesn't tell that to the disciples. In fact, he tells the disciples, what about buying food? How are you going to feed these people? Wouldn't you have assumed maybe he would say something like, okay, stand back, watch how I feed 10,000 people. Right? He was using the moment to test the disciples a little bit and to teach them. But what is the test? What is the core test that he's applying? John says that the purpose of Jesus' question was not to make the disciples feed the flock because he was already expecting to feed them. It was for some deeper purpose. For a religious man in the day of Jesus, a man like a Pharisee or a man like a rabbi, ministry didn't look like it does for you and I today. If you say you're in ministry, people assume a certain kind of role in their life, right? They assume, for example, if I tell somebody uh, I'm in ministry. Oh, really? What do you do? I explain it. Their assumption is that, well, how do you find time for all those people? Now, it's interesting kind of that they make that assumption, right? They assume there's a certain amount of time involved in dealing with the people, in helping, in counseling, in, in answering questions, in teaching. They assume time because they assume relationship. And they assume relationship because for us, ministry is all about individuals helping another individual. 
work with me here to try to break that thinking for just a moment. Because in Jesus' day, that had nothing to do with being in ministry. Men who were priests, men who fulfilled the role of a rabbi, they would have students, yes, and they taught, yes, but their role was not one of care, of pastoral care. That's something of the church. That's not a historic role for men of God in, in old times, particularly in Jewish times. So if they're looking at this crowd having come to Jesus because of their teaching, because of the apostles' teaching, they're happy with that. That's exactly what they expected. But now the care and feeding part, that's not what we're about. You all need to go home and take care of yourselves. And what is Jesus applying here as a test? He's saying, no, you're going to feed them. That's part of this job. Caring for these people now is an integral part of being a minister to them in Jesus' eyes. That's a radically different view from what they're used to. And in their day, remember, part of being in ministry gave you an opportunity to lord over people. If you thought of it as an organizational chart, like a big triangle, with the person on top being in charge, and then they have people under them, and then they have people under them, and then the organization has this pyramid-like structure. Well, that was the case in that day. Men lorded over other men through their knowledge of the, of the law or through their authority in the temple. What Jesus is going to begin to teach these men, and it comes out as you look through the entire gospel, is you take this pyramid and you turn it upside down. If you're in ministry, you serve and support those who are in your care. And the ones who are at the top of this pyramid are the congregation, if you will. Not necessarily in terms of authority in all respects. I'm not making this sort of a, uh, a rule for how you run the church. I'm talking in terms of needs being met. The one who is the servant, remember who washed the feet of the disciples? Jesus. The one who is the servant is at the bottom. And that's the intent of this picture. He's trying to show them the world a little differently. That they're going to have to be called upon to serve people in more ways than simply teaching. The best place I could take you in Scripture, beyond what we're studying here, to actually see this taught is in James. Three verses in James. Listen to what James says about this same kind of point. James 2.15 If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And his point here is simple. We often make it complicated. It's very simple. Our faith if it motivates us to do nothing more than simply speak words to people, is no faith at all. It's lip service. It's an act. If what you think and what you believe doesn't motivate you to do anything more for people than to simply tell them about your faith in that superficial way, it's no faith at all. It's not real faith. Fruit of the Spirit, we're told in Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the hallmarks of a Christian. And Jesus is working even at this early point with the disciples to teach them that when you care for people in ministry, it's not going to be easy. You know, it's not a matter of convenience. We're a very convenient-oriented culture, right? When it's convenient, it fits in our schedule. That's what we do. When it doesn't, not so much for me anymore. He's saying ministry is not about convenience. I don't care, he says, that it's convenient or not. He says, I don't care if you don't have the personal ability. It's not dependent on your personal ability. Your needs to feed or care for that 10,000 people were not dependent on whether 12 men had the physical ability to do it or not. It's irrelevant. In fact, I'll tell you, God routinely gives us demands that exceed our capabilities. In fact, he promises to do that. He just promises not to give us so much that we can't handle it in his power. And then when it is handled in his power through us, he gets the glory. 
You notice if he only gave you things you could do in your own power, who would get the credit when you did it? Right? When you do something beyond what you thought you could do, beyond what others thought you could do, that's the opportunity to glorify God. That's why he'll routinely do that. We've got to accept and understand that God is going to gift us. He's going to call us into ministry. But with that calling comes a burden. And, and I don't mean, by the way, ministry with a capital M. Some of you are sitting there going, well, you're just talking about yourself, right, Steve? Well, certainly I'm included in this. But if your thoughts of ministry are limited to people who take a very visible role like this, then let, let me help you. <laughs> ministry is person-to-person relationships in the body of Christ any way God gives you opportunity to experience that. In fact, part of the problem, I think, in some churches is we only looked at the staff of a church for ministry. The rest of us are just passive receivers. Well, that's good at first, but when do you turn that around and become an active partner in participating in ministry? That's the calling we all share in different ways according to our gifting. We're going to teach. We're going to counsel. We're going to pray for others. We're going to encourage others. We may do visitations, helps of one kind or another. There's an endless number of ways we can participate in ministry. But I don't think the disciples understood this. Not at this point. They just assume it's time these people leave. Now, he says to the disciples, what do you have for food? In John, we find out that Andrew is the first to speak up. And he says, I have a boy here, a lad, he calls him, a young man, who's selling fish and bread. But all he has is five loaves and two fish. That's where they come from, by the way. There's a young merchant boy trying to make a buck out of 10,000 people. You know, the worst thing they could do is let him loose in the crowd. He probably wouldn't come back (laughs) with, with food, that little food for so many people. Now... When they tell this to Jesus, we, we have this boy, they know already this is not enough food. It's meant not to say we have a solution. It's meant to say we don't have a solution. All we have is a meager amount of food. But then Jesus tells them to assemble the crowd into groups of 50, have them sit down in groups of 50. And in doing so, he orchestrates this amazingly orderly, calm distribution of food. And why did he group people? It's just common sense. Think about it in this sense. If you had 10,000 people that are hungry, is the guy at the back of the line confident he's going to get anything? No, I mean, we get that way when we're in the short line, right? We're worried that they're going to run out before we get to the front. And in this kind of a setting with everybody a little tense, I don't think Jesus wanted that whole crowd to come rushing in to get the food. He sets them down and he orderly distributes the food to keep order, to keep calmness in the group. Twelve men to distribute food to 10,000, they've got to go in groups, one at a time. And the rest need to sit patiently and wait. How did they actually look? You know, the most fun I have with this is sitting down and imagining in my own mind, what did it look like? I mean, think about it. You had two fish, you had five loaves of bread. Did they go down and reach one out of the basket, hand it, and then they look back and there's another one? Right? Or did they just hand one and they tore it off and the next guy tore it off, but it just never went away? It would be really fascinating to have watched how that actually took place. And I'm not sure. I have my own. Here's my theory. You're welcome to yours. My theory is that he probably divided the apostles into pairs because if he did that, you'd have, you know, he often sent them out in pairs for ministry. So maybe this would be another example of that. He'd give them each one item. So a pair went out with one loaf of bread, a pair went out with one fish. And that ends up with uh, enough to go around for all the apostles plus one left over for Jesus. Notice there were seven, by the way. It's no coincidence that the total adds up to seven, of course, because God's perfect number signifies who's making the provision here. God. And as the apostles received their allotted portion, now here's the fun part of this imagination game. I want you to put yourself in the position of, let's say, Andrew and Peter. And Christ gives you a loaf of bread. And you turn and you look at 10,000 people. You look down at your bread. You look up at 10,000 people. You look back at Jesus. You look down at your bread again. And he says, go on. Okay. (laughs) 
What happens after the first guy takes my bread? What am I going to do then, Jesus? You know, what's the plan? You notice he doesn't give them a plan other than the simple idea of getting people set up in a certain orderly way. And then he says, just feed them. What was going through their minds as they did that? What do you think they were thinking as they began to take that first step with what they had in their hand? You know, I know what I would have done. I would have said, I'm not going to go out there with one piece of bread and be mauled by 10,000 people trying to eat this bread. You're going to have to tell me how this is working. And don't we do that a little bit? We want to know the full plan. Okay, what are you going to do here? How does this all fit together? That, you know, that's ministry every time it happens in my experience. I have yet, in my own experience, to see any kind of task laid before me in a clear way and yet knowing how it's going to turn out or how it's going to work or even if it's going to succeed. I don't know about you, but I don't get that from God. He doesn't tend to give me the last step. He gives me the next step. And he typically gives me a step into something that looks impossible if I play it through in my mind. If I see where it's headed, I'm thinking, well, there's really no way that's going to happen. We look at what we have to bring to the task. We say, well, I don't have any skill. I got one loaf of bread, in other words. I've got nothing of my own I'm bringing to this that has any hope of making it successful. And I look at the enormity of the work ahead. I look at what little I bring to it. And I'm tempted to just give up before I start. Right? We're all tempted to just sit there and say, it's really not, there's really no point in this, right? I mean, all we're doing is setting ourselves up for failure if we go forward feeding 10,000 people with one loaf of bread. Did you notice how God works through us in this way? Did Jesus sit us down or sit them down, let's say, and, and say, okay, guys, this is, gonna, this is how it's going to work. Yeah, I know you've only got one loaf of bread, but what's going to happen is miraculously, as you start handing it out, more will come. I'm going to manufacture bread out of thin air. In fact, every time you tear off a piece, there'll be another one right there. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that with the disciples. He doesn't do that with me. No, what he expects is we take that first step of faith without knowing the rest, without seeing any way it can ever happen in our own power. Just like he told Abraham, go to a place I will show you. Just like he told Moses, go talk to Pharaoh. Yeah, I know you stutter. Don't worry about that, Moses. He'll do what I tell you to do. In fact, I'm going to harden his heart so he won't do what you tell him and then it's still going to work. Okay. Like Esther, when she approached the king on behalf of her people and thought, I'm going to die for having even talked to him. You take the first step, leave the rest to God. Because he'll get the glory when we take our step of faith. And what he tends to do for me, and what I think he did here for the disciples, is when you take the first step and it works, you're built up a little bit. Your confidence in what God can do through you is, is enhanced and built up. And you're ready now for the, maybe the next step, which is a little harder. But because of your prior experience, the next one you're willing to take. And I think that's part of the sense in why God does what he does. If you knew the last step, you'd never take the first one. I think half the time, if you really knew what was going to be called from you and what was going to be expected of you through the whole process, seeing it all laid out would be so daunting you wouldn't even start. I know I wouldn't. And I think these men are being trained in that same process of step by step. What did they just get done doing? They just got done going out and healing people and casting out demons. Having experienced that and said, wow, I didn't realize I had that kind of ability with God working through me. Now he says, go feed 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Okay, that looks like a little harder one, but because I just experienced the first one, maybe this one seems possible. That's the way ministry works. That's the way our own walk with God works. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, and I've never read it with the same insight as I had after I saw what I was studying in Luke. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9.10. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, 
which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. God is the one, according to Paul, who provides our seed for sowing. Well, that makes sense. We studied that already, right? The seed is the word of God. It's his word. He provides it to us. That's how we have anything to sow in a spiritual sense. But it's also God, it says, who increases the harvest of righteousness that will follow. It's all in his control. And then it adds, we are going to be personally enriched through that service. Now, we have to be careful there because so many people hear the word rich and they assume money. I think obvious and the most obvious and first important way God is going to enrich us is spiritually. He's going to give us the gain of, the, of satisfaction and the spiritual maturity that comes from service. That is his first and primary concern. That should be the one we expect first and foremost as well. But secondly, I don't think it's without the case that God is going to also provide the material needs of those who are in service to him. I mean, after all, when they got done feeding the 10,000, what did they have left over? Twelve baskets. How many apostles are there? Well, that worked out, didn't it? In other words, in the end, having served and stepped out, did the apostles have want for anything? Now, again, I'm not implying that we'll be rich out of ministry. I, I, in fact, I would think that's a mistake nine times out of ten. But what I am suggesting is that don't worry about how God is going to provide for us in the course of that ministry. He will be there to do what he needs to do. And that doesn't guarantee we're not going to have trials and tribulation along the way. The apostles, most of them, were martyred. So clearly there can come a day when things stop because that's God's desire. But along the way, he'll encourage us and empower us as he sees fit. Don't let the impossible odds, don't think that because there's no end in sight, don't let that discourage you from serving in the way God calls you to serve. Because if we do, then we'll always be discouraged. Because I don't know of any task worth doing that doesn't look hard in the moment you start. The next time, in fact, you and I have a task that looks impossible, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember what it felt like to be an apostle with a loaf of bread looking at 10,000 people. And if what you're facing doesn't look any harder than that, then why would you have any more doubt about what God can do? That would be my encouragement. Luke 9, let's go back in and pick up again in verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them, saying, Who do you say that I am? Or, I'm sorry, who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, well, what do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Well, the events of the story in chapter 9 clearly took a turn here. And in fact, the events of this verse most likely followed soon after what we just read, but probably not in the same moment. In other words, I don't want you to get the impression that they finished feeding, they come back, and then this is the dialogue. It's more likely something that followed in the days afterward. It's been the case, though, throughout this chapter that his identity has been sort of a subtext, a, an underlying theme of the whole chapter. You remember back when we studied this chapter a, a week or so ago, when we heard that Herod was trying to understand who Jesus was and he had begun asking and trying to see him. And in Mark's gospel, we actually hear it, uh, Herod conclude that, in fact, Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. That was the final conclusion that Herod had come to, that the man he had killed had come back to life to haunt him further. So the issue of who he was and what he was trying to achieve was on everybody's mind. 
So Luke is beginning to allude to this controversy. But by the way, this is why Jesus asks the question the way he does. He knows rumors are flying. In fact, if you cross-reference what we're reading here in Luke with John, many scholars come to the conclusion that this is actually these events of the feeding of the 5,000 actually occurs in the last of Jesus' three years of ministry. So, if you will, we've sort of jumped now into the last year of Jesus' ministry at about this point in the Gospel. And, of course, he's gaining huge crowds. I mean, that alone is getting a lot of attention. So, by this point, he's well-known, his powers are well-known, and he's probably come under intense scrutiny. People are really beginning to ask who he is and what he's about. So, you, you know there's rumors everywhere. And I have to imagine the disciples have heard them. You know, we've already heard in the Gospel about times when Jesus would send them into the towns either to buy food or to get water. And you have to imagine what would happen, right? Two or three of them are walking into this town. It's a busy, bustling place. And they walk in and they start to overhear people say, hey, that rabbi, he's out in the wilderness. He's right outside of town. He and his disciples are outside of town. What what an amazing guy or what a crazy guy. Who knows what they heard, right? I think it's John the Baptist. No, no, don't you know? That's Elijah. He's come back. And they're hearing some of this and they're taking it back with them. And they probably had their own ideas on top of that. But, you know, it's easy to carry around assumptions unspoken. And it's real easy to sort of play with ideas in our own mind about who people are and what we think of them, right? But all of that comes to an end. It's an entirely different thing when you have to take a stand, when that person actually confronts you. And if you ever had this experience, maybe in a work setting or with a family member, something rumored about them, something you've heard but it's never been spoken, and then they know it's out there, and they, one point they finally confront you or confront somebody in the family and say... Well, what do you think then? You think that's true? The stories you heard, do you believe them? You see, in that moment, you can't play anymore. What's playing around in your mind, all the different ideas you entertain, all the theories, now I've got to have an answer. And I've got to come to a decision. Something you may never have done to yourself. Something you may never have actually forced yourself to come to. And Jesus, in the way he asked that question, he's telling the disciples, it's time for you to take a stand. Who do you say that I am? Who am I? The the disciples, I'm sure, as they gave the answer about the others, you know, John says this, Elijah this, whatever. I'm sure some of them had kind of entertained those ideas themselves. What is really interesting, though, before we look at Peter's response, what's really interesting is when they asked or they answered his question about what others say, you notice none of them said the Messiah. What do others say about me? Well, some say this, some say that, some say this. None of those said, well, and some say you're the Messiah. It's almost obvious by, its, by the fact that it's not there, by its exclusion from the list, which I think suggests that that's what they're all afraid to say. They're all suspecting it, maybe even hoping it, but they're all a little hesitant to just come out and conclude that. And by leaving it off the list, it's sort of a pregnant moment. Will Jesus suggest it for us is probably what some of them are thinking. And Jesus asks, who am I? And Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what he was declaring when he says, the Christ of God. You are the promised Messiah, Son of God. And he's not merely saying that Jesus is the one who has been promised to deliver Israel. That was a part of what the Messiah was to do, is deliver Israel from their oppressors. But it was far more significant that Peter also said, you are the Son of God. That was not something that people generally understood about the prophecies of the Messiah. That was true insight. That's not something that when you went to the Jewish leaders of the day and you asked them about who was going to be our Messiah, who was this son of David that's promised, 
Who is the Christ? They very rarely, if ever, would have said, this is the only begotten Son of God. In other words, God Himself. The impression was it would just be another man, be, albeit a very powerful one, gifted by God, anointed by God. Peter makes a conclusion that I don't know that any of the other ones had ever even considered. In Matthew's Gospel, we see how Peter came to know this detail. Matthew sixteen seventeen, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says that Peter's answer was proof that God had blessed Peter. Blessed are you, he says. And he's being blessed because the only way he could have known what he just said was if the Holy Spirit had taught him that truth. And so, it's one thing to know that Jesus had come by God's direction or that he was anointed or that he was going to be raised up by God and so on and so forth. But it's an entirely different thing to understand that he is God as well. And that was insight that God himself had to teach. And make no mistake, that's the same way it is for you and me today. In our own power and in our own effort, it's possible to know about Jesus. It's possible to believe that he was a man of God. It's possible to believe he was a prophet, a messenger, a teacher, and all the rest that people say about him. We can do all of that in our own abilities. But to truly believe he was the Son of God requires that God himself reveal that truth to a person through the power of the Holy Spirit. And by our confession, when we say Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore that he is God himself, We are demonstrating that we have been blessed by God. That we have been given the gift of faith that Paul refers to in Ephesians 2.8. We're proving it by our very confession of it. Just as Peter did. It's the only way a man may be saved. And then Luke adds an additional detail as we come near to the end of our teaching for the day. He records that Jesus tells the apostles, All right, you're right, but don't tell anybody. Okay, wait a minute. You just had us go out healing people and casting out demons while we proclaim the kingdom. But now you're saying don't tell anybody who you are? I don't know how to put the two together. Would you? I mean, why would I keep it secret? That makes no sense. By holding back what they knew, they were going to be working in God's will to do God's plan. By holding back the truth of who Jesus was, they were working according to God's plan. How does that happen? Because they were going to prevent widespread acceptance of the Messiah. Okay, it's getting more confusing, Steve. I don't understand this. They're working in God's will to prevent people from knowing about the Messiah and believing in him and accepting him. Yes. You're ensuring that people will reject him. Yes. It's interesting to note at Matthew's account. When you look at Matthew's account of this same moment and where Peter steps forward, After Jesus says these words, what does Peter say to Jesus? If you know the story out of Matthew in Matthew 16. Uh, Here's Jesus. He's just said, who do you say I am? And Peter, being brave, steps forward and gives the right answer. And Jesus compliments him. And you know Peter, right? A little prideful. He gets a little puffed up in the moment. I'm I'm bad. I'm in charge. I'm, I'm the guy. I got this under control. You all just follow behind me. And then Jesus says, but I must suffer and I must die and I must be raised up on the third day. And what does Peter say? In Matthew 16, 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. I love that statement. 
This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Don't you just love Peter? I mean, I want you to think about what Peter just did. The Scripture says he took Jesus aside to rebuke him. So it's like taking somebody behind the woodshed. He says, Jesus, come here. Come away from the rest of the disciples, because I don't want to embarrass you. Jesus. You know, and he's, he says, Lord, which in this context would imply he knows who Jesus is. He's, he's like saying, if you want to put it in a different statement, he's saying, Jesus, forbid it, Jesus. Right? Lord, forbid it, Lord. I mean, he's, he's, he's not even understanding what he's saying. Two seconds earlier, he declared him to be God, and now he's taking him aside to rebuke him. He's either got the shortest memory on record, or he's an idiot. Right? But the funny thing is, we would all do the same thing if we're not you know, there but for the grace of God go I, because you do tend to do that. We all tend to do that, right? We do tend to forget who we're dealing with in the moment and go right back to being who we are. Uh, either Peter didn't have this whole God thing worked out where he understood what it meant to be God, or you know, he's just being Peter, and I think that's probably the case here. It's a good reminder that we can all do the same thing. Jesus calls out Peter's statement, though, for what it is. He says, get behind me, Satan. And he says, you're setting your mind on the things of men, not the things of God. And in that, you understand the significance of why it was that they were not to tell who Jesus was, and, they were not to be, and that they were to understand that Jesus had to die. When we think that God's plan isn't the best plan, but rather what we think is right is the best plan, we are replacing his will with our own, And we are seeking after men's desires, not after God's. And when he calls Peter Satan, it is not an insult. It is not hyperbola. He's not just exaggerating. He is being literal. When we act according to men's desires and and contrary to God's desires, we are doing the work of the enemy. We are doing what the enemy wants us to do. We are aligned with him. We have effectively become his agent in that moment. Peter didn't become Satan in the, in the sense of him literally being the devil. You understand that. But in that moment, he acted as if he were the devil because he was doing the devil's bidding. And that's true for all of us. When we act according to men's desires instead of God's, you might as well put the fork tail, uh, you know, put the fork in your hand and, and put the tail on. Because you're living according to, to the enemy's desires. One thing that we have to understand, if we're going to understand the way the gospel turns out, is that it was God's plan to destroy his only son. And that plan was not going to be thwarted by men. And to the extent the disciples didn't agree with it, they were working in men's desires, not God's. One thing scripture teaches us is that the father is sovereign over every event in his creation, including the plan that his son would come to earth and be rejected and be killed because that was necessary if he was going to save anybody. Let's end today with four verses out of Isaiah. And I, Hope now you'll see them with the light of what we've understood in Luke and understand them a bit better. Isaiah 53 is where we'll be. And listen to what the Father said would happen, foretold through the prophet Isaiah. 53, 6. He says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, 
So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. In the light of the gospel, this testifies to Christ perfectly. But without the light of the gospel to an Old Testament saint, it was only something that they could understand by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And even today, the only way one who may, may come to faith and understand Christ to be the Son of God will only have that experience by the power of the Holy Spirit to really recognize the truth of these words. That though we were the ones who went astray, we were the ones who went according to our own way, it was the Lord who caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. And that's why he had to be crushed and destroyed. And no one, not even the disciples, were going to stop that plan. Let's end there today. Go into prayer and give the Lord thanks for his word. Father, we are thankful this morning. And we are encouraged, I pray, Father. Perhaps convicted. But in all things, Father, we have been made to understand the truth of your word by the power of the Holy Spirit such that we might live it out. We ask you, Lord, this morning that as we end our study and as we return into a time of worship and ending our this morning, this morning with you, I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would not be active merely in this moment, merely to bring us the truth now, but, Father, would be active with us in the days of the week to come, bringing this truth back to mind, showing us, Father, the ways we may put it to work according to your will. We pray, Father, we would be in a position to uh, perhaps, Lord, see you work through us in some way that seems impossible. But in taking our first step of faith, Father, you would build us up by it. We pray, Father, that we would have an opportunity to see the fruit of that labor. That there may be some who come to know you through us or others in the faith already who would be built up by our work. Father, we have plans. We have ideas on how to pursue ministry how to serve you. But Father, if they are of our own will and not according to yours, I pray, Father, they would leave our hearts even now and that in the week to come, you would replace them. Give us your will. Show us how we are to serve you according to your desire. And Father, it is our desire that the word that's preached here would reach so many more. And we pray, Father, a blessing that the efforts we make, though we believe through them to be in your will, if they aren't, Father, we pray that you might guide them, direct them, and Help them, Father, be as you wish, so that there would be an opportunity, Father, to preach the glory of your kingdom, the truth of your word, your majesty, your power, and your love to all those who, Father, don't know it even now. Bless our time, Lord, next week with many who would gather again. And watch over our fellowship, Father, and for those in it. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.